Welcome. Uh, my name is Thomas Steininger. I welcome you to really evolve our international uh, broadcast uh, here from Frankfurt, Germany, about consciousness and culture. I'm very happy to have uh, this week in our show, Wendy Brown. Uh, Wendy, are you here? I am here. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you so much for coming. I'm really excited. Uh, if I may say just uh, some words about your background. Wendy Brown is an American political theorist, professor for political science, and a core faculty member at the University of Berkeley, California. And uh, we invited you uh, mainly also because of one of your, of your last books, which is called Undoing Demos, Neoliberalism and Stealth Revolution, where you talk about the relationship between neoliberal economics and democracy. And I would like to ask you uh, just a very simple beginning question. Um, as far as we know and we hear, uh, neoliberalism is very directly vetted to Western democracy and the values of uh, the Western open society. So usually we think that neoliberalism is in form uh, one of the foundations of our open society and one of the foundations of our democratic system. It seems that you have a different take on this. And I would like to just share some thoughts why you think differently here. I, I do have a different take on it. Uh, and this is in part because neoliberalism is relatively new. Uh, it's, of course, at this point, the water in which we swim, the air we breathe. But it's really only become our reality, governing policy, form of reason, the air we breathe uh, in the last 35 years. Uh, so it doesn't quite make sense to equate it with open societies and democracy. And my argument is that actually it has not only contributed to a profound de-democratization of the places, um, especially of the, of the liberal democracies where it, it exists, but it has in fact um, also brought out uh, some pretty profound anti-democratic forces. Mm. And I, I would be glad to explain why I think that is. Yeah. Maybe we start to uh, define some terms here. Because sure. uh, when we're talking about neoliberalism, obviously we make some differentiation between liberalism and neoliberalism. And you just mentioned that uh, uh, we're talking about a very new phenomenon. It's only something you said 35 years old. So what do we mean? What is neoliberalism? What do we mean? So I think, you know, most Europeans have a, have a pretty strong sense of what neoliberalism means as a set of economic policies. Um, that is, most understand that it was a, a form of uh, enhancing or strengthening free market um, understanding of, of how markets themselves best, best prevail, uh, but also um, it was a set of policies, of course, most commonly understood as heralded by the Thatcher-Reagan revolution in which privatization of public goods, limits on taxation or a turn toward more regressive taxation, um, and the unleashing of capital and the sort of disintegration of labor and labor associations 
were all part of a set of policies uh, that were supposed to reestablish a more uh, powerful profit basis for capital and make individuals more responsible for themselves. So it's usually accompanied by formulations of, of what the French call responsabilization, um, in which individuals are supposed to be less and less dependent on the state and uh, especially on social welfare and more and more entrepreneurial in mm-hmm. developing the capacity to sustain themselves. And all of that is certainly an important part of neoliberalism, the dismantling of the social state, the privatization of public goods, the dismantling of progressive taxation in favor of more regressive forms. But I want to make a different argument about neoliberalism, which is that it's also a form of social and political reason in which markets and market metrics become the ubiquitous form of thinking and practicing life. Um, So I treat neoliberalism, and here I borrow heavily from the thinker Michel Foucault, as as a governing rationality through which everything is economized and in a very specific way. Human beings become market actors and nothing but. Every field of activity is seen as a market. And every entity, public, private, person, business, state, is governed as a firm. I find it very, very fascinating because, as you know, our program has also the subtitle, uh, a broadcast for consciousness and culture. And the way you are uh, speaking about neoliberalism, you just change the sphere slightly a little bit. You're not just talking about economics. You're, you're talking about reasoning, the way how we experience us as human beings and how we organize our being together in our, our society, in, in the way we organize economy and our public life. And you say the way we think about ourselves, the way we reason about ourselves is changing when we look through the lenses and the logic of neoliberalism. Uh, you use the term uh, economization. Uh, is that uh, uh, the, is, is, is that really also where the danger comes in from a neoliberal uh, thinking? Precisely. So not only is everything economized, neoliberalism challenges the very idea of us being uh, a society. You'll remember famously Thatcher said, there's no such thing as society. Right. There's only individual men and women and their families. So neoliberalism's assault on the social and on society, and I'll, we'll talk about this later, on democracy in favor of marketizing everything is really profound. And, and I want to make clear here, this isn't just a matter of extending commodification everywhere. That's the old Marxist depiction of, mm-hmm. of of capital's transformation of everyday life. And it it was important, but what neoliberalism does as a form of reason and a a way of governing us throughout life is that it construes even non-wealth generating spheres, learning, loving, dating, exercising, thinking. It construes even those spheres in market terms, submits them to market metrics, and governs them with market techniques. 
it casts us everywhere as just bits of human capital who have to constantly tend to our present and future value across every sphere of life. So the point is that today, market actors, whether they're now individuals or firms or schools or states or restaurants or podcasts, they have to be more concerned with their speculative value, their ratings and their rankings Mm -hmm. than with their content or their aim in any other dimension. And it's not just that they have to be concerned with profit. They Mm -hmm. have to be concerned with their capital value in the financial sense. They have to enhance their present and future value through investing in themselves, um, being tweeted, retweeted, liked on Facebook and so forth, or, uh, you know, being ranked in a particular way. And this is as true for bond markets and nations as it is for individuals. And that's what neoliberalism has wrought. Yeah. That's a small example that I, I read recently. And uh, it happened, of course, in California, um, is that there is a, a new profession of people, not only walking dogs, that's already kind of a profession since a while, but there's also a yes. profession people walking people. Uh, so that, uh, and it's in, it's, it seems that in, in, in Los Angeles and Hollywood, this is quite a success story right now. So uh, just, just something happens that people, that it becomes something you can hire people to have, to walk with you, to have a walk. Uh, in itself, okay, it's, it, uh, it, it's, it's, it's all fine, but I think it, it highlights something what you're talking about, about the economization of spheres, something that usually we, we would not imagine that this is something you hire people for becomes part of the market uh, economy. Yes. And yes. I, I think there's just nothing that's untouched by um, marketization at this point. And again, it's not only always about actual monetization. It's also about the way in which value is being produced uh, and enhanced in, in various domains. So to offer another ordinary example, uh, there are more and more dating sites in which mm. one's credit rating is a crucial part of one's profile. Wow. And not just one's assets or actual income, but one's credit rating. And that tells you that the Rating the character on the dating site um, is heavily determined by their credit rating, which, of course, in turn is determined by the way in which they've practiced themselves as a bit of human capital. So it makes complete sense to me that this is a a very direct dehumanizing factor in the way we live together. But the point you seem to make is is slightly different or has a different focus point. It's, of course, I'm sure it has also this dehumanization as as, as part of it. But you say it's a a danger for democracy. Um, And... Maybe we, we also discuss uh, when we talk about different spheres, you talked about the economic spheres. What are the other spheres of human society of, of being together that you see in danger by this economization through neoliberalistic uh, thinking and practice? So, Thomas, are you asking um, what are the spheres that neoliberalism has economized that used to have? Uh, yes other spirit or or set of measures or values yes 
Okay. So I think there are several. I mean, I think this is an important way in which neoliberalism can be distinguished from classical economic liberalism. You know, the old economic liberals, Adam Smith and uh, Ricardo, and uh, then even some of those in the 20th century, um, understood that economics was what but one domain of life. Uh, and then there might be family life or religious life or moral life, but also political life. And that political life might well be um, democratic. It might be the place where human beings uh, seek to govern themselves and set the terms of their existence in common. Mm. Neoliberalism challenges that profoundly. In fact, the classical neoliberals, Hayek, the ordo-liberals, our Chicago school, the most famous one being Milton Friedman, all converged. They had different views on certain things, but they all converged on the view that democracy was a danger to markets and, in fact, a danger to freedom. Too much democracy meant that majorities would set the terms of existence for uh, humans and that they would demand uh, too much statism, too much intervention, not mm -hmm. only regulation of markets, but also provision. And the, the, they understood that democracies where there's a universal franchise would lead to a social state, if not social democracy, mm -hmm. if not socialism. And uh, they hated that for various reasons. Um, some more noble than others. Uh, some argued that it was, you know, what, what led to the road to, to totalitarian societies. Right. But in other cases, they simply wanted, uh, capital to rule. So they, they, part of the, the, the argument for marketizing everything and deregulating everything was to radically constrain democracy, not just the state and to reduce democracy really to nothing more than voting in order to facilitate the peaceful transfer of power, but to get rid of the idea entirely of popular sovereignty. So what, what happens with this challenge to democracy when, in addition, every value and domain is economized is that human beings actually lose the sense of the value of governing ourselves in common hmm. and instead really do start to understand freedom as just the, the freedom to do what you want with yourself and your assets and your capital, your human capital, and, and really do understand, start to understand democracy as um, either of no value or as uh, reducible entirely to the question of private rights. And that opens the door for our rule by markets, by technocracies, uh, and of course, also by oligarchies and plutocracies. Mm -hmm. um, and what I'm suggesting is that neoliberalism has a particular vision of, of what would rule us, namely markets alone, but at the, in, in, in unleashing this anti-democratic economization. It also um, so radically depresses the value of democracy that I think most people these days would be hard-pressed to say what it is apart from elections. Mm.
And doesn't this show in a very practical, hands-on way in the in the question about taxing? Uh, yes. Because the, the question about taxing or taxes is basically should uh, the democracy, should the public sphere have a budget or not? And it seems to be uh, uh, that uh, the, the, the main po political direction that we are going, and America is here much more ahead uh, than Europe, is basically that uh, the small state, which means the state has as little uh, budget to make any kind of policies, uh, is uh, the most efficient way how we can organize our societies. But that means, of course, that, that the sphere where we do have democratic rule, where we do have parliaments, where we do have popular sovereignty, as you said, have no, have no leeway to make any decision because there's nothing behind this decision. Well, that's certainly so. Um, although there is also an irony here because as neoliberalism was rolled out, the other order of power that we haven't talked about too much began to take hold, namely financialization, mm -hmm. led to more and more growth in um, what we can call debt financing for states. So that even though tax revenues were radically reduced, um, state coffers were built through debt. Mm. Uh, I don't need to tell Europeans about how this has worked out over the past five years. Right. Um, but uh, the, this new order of debt financing, both for home ownership and for uh, states, has created a, a, a kind of what, what somebody like Wolfgang Strick calls a, a, a kind of a buying of time for capitalism once you've cut the tax revenues. But it doesn't exactly reduce the actual budgets of states or in the case of the EU, of the EU. Now, all that said, we just took ourselves into some complex territory there. <laughs> we'll absolutely agree with you that um, one of the uh, principles of neoliberalism is to reduce the, the size and the reach of the state and to subordinate it to a fairly simple task, which is facilitating markets, stabilizing markets, um, keeping markets open and competitive. In fact, that neoliberal dream never came to pass. States have always been doing much more than that, even as they've been neoliberalized. But their legitimacy and the expectation of citizens about them has really changed from being forums for democratic justice to being managers of nations understood on the model of firms, that is keeping growth rates up, keeping investment rates high, keeping credit ratings solid, all the things that EU states, for example, are in constant anxiety about vis-a-vis -vis one another as well mm -hmm. as vis-a-vis -vis the EU as a whole. And, you know, this way of legitimating so-called democratic states on the basis entirely of economic outputs and metrics is really novel. 
It's not that it wasn't present at all in the middle of the last century, but Mm -hmm. states were also expected to be the, the scene of constitutionally enshrined um, principles of justice, democratic will execution, mm-hmm. and um, a place for deciding what the common good ought to be and um, and producing that common good. And neoliberalism again uh, just makes um, uh, just 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 shreds the idea of a common good. Doesn't believe in a po- common good. I mean, the, the the if you read Hayek or Rupke or others, what you see is they 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 refer to the idea of a, a common good or a public good as a nonsense notion, uh, and say there's there's only private interests and private goods, and that's all that um, we should be building government to tend. So once again, you have the very domain in which and and language of democracy being disintegrated by neoliberal reason. Mm-hmm. With no common good, what is the demos supposed to do? What is the demos supposed to rule? It can't. It 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 it's apparently only there to ratify states, which in turn are only there to tend markets. Hmm. There is of course a difference uh, between common interests and private interests uh, that uh, kind of goes to the foundations of uh, what we call democratic values, because. Uh, private interests are not equal. Private interests are dependent on on the on the size of the private identity. Uh, the, I, as an individual, have my private interest. Uh, Google or Microsoft uh, I also have their own private interest. So, it basically, if we say there is no common good and no common interest, uh, we only talk about very different forms of uh, pr- private. Identities. The only place where we can meet as equals, and that's one of the foundations of uh, uh, European democratic thinking, uh, has to be the public sphere, the demos. So what 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 you're saying is basically the outruling of 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 this uh, sphere where we can meet as equals and ha- can have a, a, a sh- shared uh, conversation and decision process of how we want to organize organize our society in any form as equal citizens of the society. You've said that so perfectly. So we have two two forces that are um, disintegrating the idea of democracy at the level of the public interest. One is to literally privatize everything. So there is no such thing as a as as public goods, public values, public concerns. Um, and and that includes privatizing the interests of the citizen so that ev- all the citizen is supposed to care about is their own individual human capital uh, and that of their family. And on the other hand, as you just said, when everything is reduced to private interest, you have essentially legitimated the profound inequality that undermines any possibility of democracy. Democracy depends at at its most fundamental level on the notion of political equality. Mm -hmm. That is, we each have an equal say in the question of who we are, what we should do together, what the principles are that should govern us. Mm -hmm. You eliminate that political voice and reduce everything to private interests, you at the same time consecrate, consecrate 
the profound inequality among those private interests, the difference between you and Google, or um, the difference between corporations in general and individuals. And there's no better uh, certification of that destruction of political equality in favor of private interests than a very important Supreme Court decision that um, came about in 2011 in the United States, which your readers, I'm sorry, listeners um, may well be familiar with. It's called Citizens United. And it is the um, Supreme Court decision that said corporations have uh, the right to free speech just like anyone else Mm -hmm. and therefore ought to be able to spend unlimited amounts of money in campaigns. It essentially disintegrated campaign finance regulation and gave corporations really the power to control not just elections, but legislation, because it gave corporations the unlimited power to buy senators, congresspeople, but also to write legislation that would then be promoted by their own lobbyists and pushed through Congress. So apart from our current shameful disaster uh, in the White House, mm-hmm. we had well before that an attack on democracy that perfectly comports with what you described as the reduction of everything to private interests and thus the inequality between the loud, powerful, moneyed, concentrated interests of corporations versus the individual. Um, there's no chance. There's no chance that individuals <laughs> um, can, can speak and influence to the same degree that not only Google and Microsoft, but the tobacco industry, big agriculture, big pharma, um, all of the, the major and consolidated industries can, and of course, the finance industry. Mm. That is exactly what's happening in, in American politics. Exactly, and not only in American po- uh, politics. Uh, every time when I think and talk about this subject, um, One one question uh, that really bothers me is how did it come all about? Well, yes. Uh, uh, we, with we, I mean uh, uh, the, uh, the Western uh, the, the Western world. Uh, we were so proud about our democratic revolutions and our democratic rights. Maybe the, the French Revolution, uh, maybe the, the American Independence War, uh, may, may be the, the German Revolution after the First World War. Uh, all, we, we were proud of this. How did it come about that all of a sudden uh, uh, this uh, doesn't count anymore? Uh, is one of the reasons also that um, uh, when we had this democratic revolution and they were all were hard fought for, that they all... Uh, emerged in the context of the nation state and uh, and that the nation state was, was holding this power but uh, in mm. the emerging global mm. economy uh, mm. there is a a, a a worldwide economic sphere that basically is outpowering uh, the context that democracy emerged in and uh, in, the, in that sense uh, the nation states particularly small european states they don't really have also the Uh, the, the standing anymore to hold their whatever democratic thinking because it, they can be blackmailed by uh, powers uh, uh, 
Facebook has a budget, uh, I think, higher than most of European countries. So uh, in that sense, uh, uh, we are having a very unequal competition here of values. And then, of course, there's the, uh, it's not just the, the political sphere, it's also how we start to think about and what, what gets uh, broadcasted and what gets publicized, uh, that more and more shift into a different direction here. You know, the question of, of how this neoliberal revolution came about and uh, how its saturation took hold is a, is a really big question for, for scholars and, and others who, who have really tried to figure out um, how is it that when so many people actually um, feel the pain, we haven't even talked about the worldwide inequalities that... Mm -hmm generated, not to mention those within nations that became the seed of our current um, neo-fascist uprisings. Um, but how is it that it took hold and um, and and then got got traction so quickly? Mm -hmm. And I don't think there's any comprehensive answer to that. Okay. Uh, one, one thing I will say is that you know the the sort of standard. Neo-Marxist answer is that neoliberalism emerges in the 70s in response to a set of crises, uh, the, the, the shift of global economic gravity to OPEC and Asia and the dilution of, of class power that, that unions had generated and, and redistributive welfare states, um, and above all, the problem of what economists call stagflation, um, too much inflation combined with no growth, and um, that there was a crisis, an economic crisis, that, as Milton Friedman once put it, um, what matters in a crisis is what ideas are lying around that might take hold at that moment. Because, you know, before the 70s, uh, the neoliberals were, they'd, they'd been around for 40 years, but they were mostly left out of mm -hmm. uh, economics and social policy. Keynesians had won the day. Social democracies were what we cherished. Um, so then the question is, how did, how did it take hold? So I, I think there is something to the argument that um, capitalists themselves and states that were willing to uh, support them uh, uh, helped launch this thing. But what if that doesn't get at is this enormous transformation of life brought about by neoliberal reason. The way that public institutions and services got thoroughly recast as private goods and workplaces and schools and social life got, got remade in this new model of thought and practice and governance. And there, I think one has to see what the attractiveness was of the freedom through which neoliberalism sold itself, you know, get out from under the lumbering bureaucratic welfare state, get out from under the, the, you know, the heaviness of the long-term union job and, you know, make an entrepreneur of yourself, drive Uber, um, mm -hmm. you know, change, change your, your, your face and your, your, your practices 17 times in 17 years, there was an attractiveness to that. So I think it's just a question of one more time 
capital kind of pulling the wool over everyone's eyes for its own interest, though there certainly was that. Mm-hmm. Also think financialization moved into everyday life in ways that are, are kind of hard to track to an agent. That is, the mm-hmm. ways we begin to rate and rank ourselves in parallel with the ways that states or corporations are rated or ranked. All of that is the result of, of, of a new financialization of the world. So I, I'm trying to suggest that this mm-hmm. was revolution. This is a dramatic transformation of life, of democracy, of humans, of work practices, of learning, of loving, of everything else. But it didn't have a concrete set of revolutionaries behind it, other than the ideas of the neoliberals and then some of the accidents that happened along the way. Now, let me say one more thing. I think the good news is this. As severe a critic as I am of neoliberalism, <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't think it has much, much to say for itself. I, you know, it's produced some, some nightmarish outcomes. Uh, for for humanity and the world, not to mention climate change and the human spirit. But I do think we need to appreciate that it was not inevitable. It was an accident. It was a question of what ideas were lying around during a crisis. It was a question of experiments, first in Chile and then in the Middle East with these ideas. It was a question of 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 producing a new order, not just the inevitable development of capitalism. And because it was an accident, because it was contingent, because it was, you know, the result of, of some revolutionary ideas put into practice, 70s, 80s, the 90s, that means there's hope for our team. That means we too could come up with what's a better way to live? What's better mm-hmm. for the planet, the human spirit? the species on this planet, Mm. ways of being together, ways of governing ourselves. I'm not saying it's easy, but I do think it's important to see that the neoliberal revolution, powerful as it was, um, was, was not a given. It was not, nobody predicted it. Nobody expected it in the 1950s or 60s. There was no way on earth anyone thought this was the world we were going to have. So we have a chance. We don't have a lot of time, but we have a chance to bring about a different kind of order. No, I, I appreciate that. Also, basically making the point that it was not a necessary development. But I, I would like to question if it's really just an accident in history that just happened, because there were there were uh, there were also other other ideas lying around in the 1970s, and. Uh, uh, this those ideas got picked up and i'm not looking for a kind of an uh, a revolutionary or an agent behind i'm more looking for what's happening in the logic of our societies this monetization yeah. of, yeah. of 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 living and thinking and basically uh, as you said that uh, we are creating ourselves in 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 in, in, on, in online ways that basically uh, all comes down to the points uh, that we have in every part of our life. What forces are going on that are that are creating this? Uh, or is this a too naive question to ask? No, no, it's it's. I, th- I just think it's a very it's a 
It's a very powerful question, a very important question. It's also a very big question. Um, and I don't feel that I have uh, the capacity to answer it well. So I'll just say a couple of things. Sure. Um, there is no question, and I think this is what you were getting at earlier, that uh, already in the 60s, in the post-war period, really, for uh, Europe and, and North America, but also beyond it, that the limits of nation-state economies, but also even political cultures, were beginning to be pressed. And that uh, globalization, as we have now just commonly come to call it, was already on its way without uh, even the particular neoliberal form that dismantling barriers to trade and competition would generate. Mm. Um, so that door was open. And the, and, the, and, and the reason I mentioned the OPEC crisis is it really brought it into the open. I mean, suddenly here were these countries in the Middle East mm -hmm. seemed to have enormous power over what had heretofore been presumed to be the absolute center of economic and political gravity in the world, mm -hmm. namely the West. And so suddenly, between the rise of China and Asia more generally, and the enormous power centered in oil in, in the Middle East, um, the globe was beginning to shift from that center in the West to and, and in nation states to something um, that nobody had good names for yet, let alone good practices. So you get all these institutions emerging, the IMF, the World Bank, the World Trade Organization, and so forth, with a neoliberal form, just as the European Union emerges with a neoliberal form. Uh -huh. But they're also already emerging out of what I think you were describing, which is uh, the, the beginning of the end of the Westphalian order of nation states mm -hmm. as sovereign figures in the world. I'm just looking a little bit at time and seeing that we are also coming close to the end and I'm very aware that we haven't touched many things and, and you, you just mentioned, uh, for example, the complete catastrophe in the global south that this has created and, uh, uh, the kind of, uh, uh, poverty crisis are, uh, that, that, that is part of it. I, I would like, uh, to go, um, in a, in a, in a direction where I also would like to touch what's happening right now. Uh, mm. and I would call it the populist revolution because mm. I, couldn't one say that the populist revolution somehow is, uh, the answer to this? It at least presents itself to be the answer to this. Because when you talk uh, about the populist yeah. right in, in, in Europe, they, they, they would follow most of the arguments and uh, make their uh, nationalistic agenda uh, being the answer to uh, what you uh, describe as the problem right now. Yes and no. Um, in the book that I'm finishing right now, my argument is that what we come to call the populist right is actually the perfect expression of neoliberalism, even if not the one that the original architects of neoliberalism intended. What I mean is this. You have the disintegration of the demos, the, the um, elimination of the value of democracy, but at the same, and that's, you know, what neoliberalism meant to do. And that's one thing that populism represents. And then on the other hand, 
you have this global race to the bottom produced by free trade and um, and the elimination of of national boundaries um, protecting everything from uh, um, immigration against immigration but also uh, uh, the, the ability of, of labor to make a decent living and so part of what we're getting of course is a reaction to globalization but at the same time I'd argue it's taking a very neoliberal form it's not it's 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 not about democracy it's not about uh, political equality it's not about um, as it were a public interest it's about a reaction to um, the disintegration or it is a reaction to the disintegration of the condition of of the working class combined with the disintegration of national boundaries it's in that sense a reaction to neoliberalism that's also directly in its form and you say it's directly in its form are uh, do you see this particular in the in the way it, it shows itself with uh, Trump or with Trump? Uh, uh, I, I can follow your argument, and I see it slightly different in Europe because uh, it, it, this kind of I mean Trump in itself is one of the representatives of everything that you have been talking about uh, and calling out this populist revolt. But there is also kind of a populist kind of uh, let's defend uh, our regional, whatever, our regional identity, our nation, uh, uh, nation states, and yeah. uh, let's get against the others. And also using very uh, uh, democratic forms, uh, referendums, is uh, like the Brexit referendum, you could call a hyper-democratic uh, attempt Uh, but uh, the, the, uh, the agenda it's doing, uh, it is attempting to do it goes in a different direction. I agree with you. And yet what I still want to insist is that what you see in these referendums is a, um, or, or in some of the uh, extreme right formations in and parties, um, Le Pen's, yours, et cetera, um, is, is a demand For the conditions to improve human capital value mm -hmm. on the part of mostly white um, inhabitants of these nations. And they imagine that that improvement of human capital value will happen by closing the gates, restoring the white man to power, mm -hmm. um, Resecuring economic conditions for their human capital enhancements. Even the, even the yellow vest movement right now mm -hmm. has exactly that at stake. Now, of course, it is an argument with the particulars of neoliberal economics. But the reason I'm saying it's still within the form is that it's not about what's the common good or the public good. It's about what's good for me and what I've lost and what I think I need in order to get that mm -hmm. um, resecured and reshored. So your argument is the, also, par the paradigm stays the same. Yes. And now I'm not suggesting this is what the neoliberals had in mind. They would hate this. They would hate the, 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 the mass affect, the mob mentality. They would hate the neo-fascist dimension of it. They would certainly hate the nationalism and so forth. But the, I, I'm saying in a sense, it's, it's the Frankenstein that has emerged Uh, from the project.
But I, I do, since we're so close to the end, want to say mm-hmm. this. Um, that's one effect. But the other effect, which I think we're all aware of today, is also a, a reawakening on the, of, we call it here in the U.S., a left populism. I know that doesn't mm-hmm. translate so well into European lexicons. But there's also on the left a recognition of the importance of thinking about how to produce political cultures and um, and social spaces that that are alternatives to neoliberalism and and also represent the values political spiritual cultural that would be sustaining for the earth and for the populations human and non-human on it and I think, you know, as we're horrified by all that's happening on the right, it's important for us also to see, and I see this in my classrooms every, every time we discuss these issues. Once students understand the, the, uh, the languages and the terms by which they're being governed, you know, what it means to be reduced to a little hamster, uh, who is a, a bit of human capital endlessly racing on that wheel. And I see these students say, but that's not what I want. That's not who I want to be. That's not the world I want. There is in that, I think, enormous promise for beginning to build the ideas, the practices, the human connections, and the, and the political formations for a different world. And I think both we're at a really important conjuncture right now, a very terrifying one, and the clock is ticking. But I I do think there is some promise on our side. Um, As an impossible last question, this promise that you you are talking about, how can this emerge? What, what, What is to be focused on for this promise to have a chance to come about? So I'm asked this question quite frequently, and I think it's important for us to realize that it can be focused on in a whole variety of ways. We are so used to thinking that revolutions have to happen in a consolidated giant swoop, uh, whether through, you know, coups or taking over the state or um, transforming society radically in one big uh, week of activities. And in fact, what we learned from the neoliberal revolution is that it happened through a slow, well, not so slow, but through a, through the movement, through institutions. It happened through altering laws and it wasn't, there was no big coup. There were in a few cases, Chile, Iraq, and so forth. But for the most part, it's, it's, it's about altering practices. So I think whether people are working with refugees, or they're working on alternative um, economic arrangements in localities, whether they're trying to solve housing crises or whether they're trying to uh, think about how to rekindle the value of the arts in mm-hmm. schools or in, or in public life, that it is possible to bring a different set of values to this work than the neoliberal ones. So I think the biggest mistake we make as progressives is thinking, well, I have my critique, I have my dream, but I just have to submit 
to neoliberal language and practices in order to make sure my mm-hmm. opera house survives or my 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 little school survives. And I think that's not right. I actually think we don't have to submit. I think we've learned actually in recent years there are lots of other ways to refound uh, these things and to make them survive mm-hmm. than to just giving up and turning everything into branding mm-hmm. and and uh, and selling. Wendy, uh, thank you so much. We are at the end of our time. Uh, I know we we only touched on a few things, and uh, there would be so much more to talk about. Uh, uh, if people want to learn more about your work, where should they go? Um, well, probably the best thing to do is to have a look at the book we were talking about, Undoing the Demos, mm-hmm. which is translated now into German as well. All so right. um, that's nice uh, for for those for whose for whom that that's their first language or best language. Um, and then I have a new book coming out, which will also be translated into German. Um, and what is it called? It's called In the Ruins of Neoliberalism, and it will be out in. Uh, I think about four months. Um, so that's what I would suggest. But Thomas, let me thank you for such a good conversation. It was very rich. Thank you. Uh, it was really uh, fantastic to hear you. And uh, I think it's an important conversation to have. So Great. thank you so much for joining us. And thank good you everyone night. for listening to this.